Welcome to Leadership Matters, a podcast hosted by me, Steve Parker, a series that brings a fresh perspective to leadership, motivation, and how to succeed by talking to a diverse range of CEOs, business managers, and world-class talent. We also offer some personal tips to help you in your career. Each episode aims to provide a snapshot into the life and philosophy of some of Taiwan and the world's most successful leaders, and to find out more about why leadership matters. We are super fortunate to have John Eastwood in the studio today. He's a lawyer and the managing partner of IGA. IGA have offices in Taipei and Shanghai. John has been here in Taiwan for 22 years. As a law firm, often they see future trends in work before they happen. I started off by asking John whether he had seen the homeworking trend before it happened. John, welcome to the studio. Oh, great to be here. I am... Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, as a law firm, you often see things before they happen. Did you get to see or predict this work from home? Did you, as a, as a you know, when you were interviewing and talking to clients and stuff, did you ever imagine this was going to become the thing that it has become today? I think one of the important things we ran across in our own firm, in our own work, um, was many years ago, several of us you know, partners within the firm, we all had children around the same time. And in that time frame, we started looking for ways in which we could securely um, exchange documents and do video conferences and things like that and to talk to each other, um, even if one of two of us couldn't be in the office at a particular time. And that was the first sign, of course, that a lot of the technologies were coming into place and things were still pretty raw and there was a lot of difficulties and especially you know if you're running a firm uh, that has offices in in Taiwan and China where you know, the great internet firewall exists um, and where where Google is not really a preferred company over there you know you, you struggle to make things work but you, you do find ways and you, you have a vision about these things uh, so when the pandemic started um, of course a law firm is a catch base and for people's you know, companies' problems or their ideas. And we got a lot of queries about what people could do about work from home. As a leader running multiple locations, how has working from home changed, you know, how, how people have to deal with this stuff? Well, you know, we had to come up with a bit of a mix. And, you know, I, I tend to adopt a, a little bit of the leadership philosophy about, you know, the it's easier to pull a string than to push it. So I try... You know, in my case, because I'm a bit of a air traffic controller for a lot of work coming in, that I try to be in the office as much as possible, and and I try to be in there every day if I can. But I also realize that for public health reasons, it's not wise, you know, for us to have a crowded office, and so we do rotate folks out. From a work from home standpoint, there's a greater acceptance of technology in the business world, in the legal world. And then just even, you know, with ourselves. Now, we were early adopters uh, within our firm. We, we tended to be a bit different, uh, partly because we had these, uh, we were originally a Zurich-headquartered firm. Um, we were a bit more, you know, international. Our local colleagues, uh, almost all of them have studied overseas and lived overseas and embraced quite a bit of that. But as a leader, does it, I mean, is there, is there more stress involved with managing people in multiple locations? I one aspect is this, is it is like um, when we first, because of the pandemic, went to work from home, um, you know, of course, that meant that there were junior people in the firm who were then working from home. 
And, you know, the first thing is you, you ask yourself, do I trust these people? Am I actually going to get work from them? Are they, how do I know they're not just sitting around in a bathrobe, um, you know, not doing the work or rushing to do the work at the last second, you know, when I ask the fifth time for it or something. And, and some of that is also, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolving thing because you don't have the person right there in your office where you can see them working. You know, I mean, you have to, fil- you have to facilitate this. You have to help them. You have, uh, you have to look at the needs and, uh, and try to address those, those specific individual needs. You once told me that a lawyer's kind of uh, first position is always to try and to negotiate rather than kind of bring the rule of law down on someone, right? I mean, the best solution is obviously for two people, company, leader, employer, whatever, negotiate, discuss, find out what the best solution is. Um, we've got a situation now where we may have people who are used to working at home, prefer to work at home in the Apple case, right? They're saying, I want to work at home. I don't want to come back to the office. I've been able to do my job for the last two years yes. without yes. coming in. Why do I need to come in? The boss is saying, I'd kind of like you to be here. You know, I mean, where does that go? You know, where, where does that conversation yeah, go? It, it's like you can, I mean, there's, there's different styles of lawyering, and I've seen several kinds, and I always tend towards the one which is a little bit more like let's find an appropriate bespoke solution for this rather than just throw a cookie cutter onto it. The cookie cutter solution is, well, get in or I'm going to fire you. But the other one which is more kind and, and uh, it preserves the long-term health of the employer-employee relationship is always going to be something in which you hear them out, you listen to people. And, you know, if people, you know, don't need to be in the office, do they need to be in there? I mean, you have to, you know, um, you know a management philosophy that's extremely strict and never listens to anybody isn't much of a management philosophy. So if you, like, you know, yeah, you know, if you say, like, for example, three days a week in the office maybe not crazy, um, you know, but uh, if, if they said, uh, you know, you got to be in all the time. Um, I, I mean, I always love it when employers do look creatively at how they can match the needs. And we're also seeing a lot of thinking within companies about how to, um, you know, allow employees not just to work from home, but to work from anywhere in the world that they want to go to. And so we get a lot of queries, you know, lately about we want to allow people to go anywhere in the world to go see their family members and spend time with them. It's just that, you know, during the working hours, um, the kind of like, you know, the time in which we need to be able to reach them, we'd like to be able to reach them. And uh, we, but we'd like them to have the flexibility to go for four to six weeks or or even half year. And then at that point, you know, the big, some of the big questions come up about like, well, you know, is there an immigration issue? Is there a tax issue, uh, like a personal tax issue? Is the company getting itself somehow into a position where they're putting a person into Taiwan? They're doing business in Taiwan. Do they have an entity here? Could they do it as a secondment arrangement? And there's a lot of these questions. Uh, but I always love it when I hear that an employer is thinking about um, something that would be a, a minor act of kindness. You know, um, you haven't seen your mom and dad for three years because of the pandemic. How would you like to go work remotely and go see them for several months? And, and that's, you know, affirmatively, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, 
you know, a, a, like a, a bright shining star in the midst of uh, like, you know, these kind of the messy pandemic situation, the idea that you'd actually give people a chance, you'd realize you'd have the security, the comfort and the trust to be able to say, I, you know, it, um, <laughs> go see your mom and dad, go see go spend some time with your brother. I wanted to kind of circle back to one of the things that we alluded to just now. You were talking about people having different, uh, being able to work in different locations. This idea of outsourcing now, I mean, a lot of stuff, if you look at, there are so many apps. If people can work from anywhere and do kind of anything for you on a freelance basis, how, how does this, I mean, how does this affect the law? I mean, employment law. Right. I mean, you know, you have to ask these hard questions. Um, for example, like, you know, we have people that have to be Taiwan lawyers and they have to be ready to go to a Taiwan court and physically be there. And they can't be that. And, and every factory has, um, you know, like, for example, they've got workers who have to work machines and move things around into trucks and they have to do. So they have people who have to physically be in a location. Uh, our firm for many years has had one, uh, and, and, it's, um, and, and there's, it's been a couple of different people over the years, but we've always had at least one person who was a remote assistant. Um, I think for a number of years we had someone in India. We now have somebody who works out of the Philippines, um, you know, fluent in English, multilingual, um, extremely bright, uh, very capable with different kinds of uh, computer programs, uh, very diligent, uh, very hardworking, but doesn't really do legal stuff uh, because you know, client confidentiality being what it is, uh, and the, also the person's not a lawyer. But there's a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, if I want my PowerPoints to look good, um, this person's wonderful at it. And if, if I need to update my Christmas card lists, which, uh, you know, can be very, you know, I mean, people move around and addresses change, and some of them are, um, you know, I mean, if there's one thing I've noticed with the pandemic is that an awful lot of addresses have moved. Perhaps because people were able to downsize their office space, you know, uh, all that work from home really took an effect. So, so I think, um, you know, we find that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tasks where you can have someone who's incredibly diligent, brilliant, uh, multilingual, work on it from a different part of the world, um, and you just uh, you, you can do that. So, how, I mean, as a, as a manager, as a leader, how how do you get your head around dealing with these, you know? The relationships that you have, they're different now. Yeah, it's like meeting a celebrity sometimes. It's like, oh, my God, you're you. <laughs> you, you know, uh, we, we have, um, we've had at least one of our, our remote assistants come up to Taiwan on vacation. And it was great because, you know, we got to finally see this person um, that, you know, has done such great work for us. And I think, um, you know, you do want to make sure that ultimately people are in, uh, you know, Taiwan, usually this is not a, uh, too much of an issue, is that people uh, do have good access to ha national health insurance, and they do have, a uh, under the Labor Pension Act, they do have a portable pension. So it's really, I think, in Taiwan, there's a lot of, there's a good floor for benefits. People uh, do have the capability to pay in for their pensions and pay in for their national health insurance. Um, they don't necessarily need to have an employer if you're if you're local and you have a, a visa status that uh, that allows for it. Uh, those who are on open work permits, foreigners who are on open work permits, are in a pretty f you know fortunate situation. So, is there anything legal or illegal about having someone working for you uh, in Estonia, for instance? I'm not picking on Estonia. I'm just picking a you know a, a country that perhaps we don't spend much time in. 
yeah, you have to test them out. I mean, I guess, you know, that's, that's the heart of it is that you have to know that you have to build that trust. And the first couple of assignments, you probably have that. After, aside from that, there's also, you know, does it financially make sense? And a lot of times the rates are going to be okay. It'll, over, you know, it'll, it'll uh, beat out, um, you know, say the withholding tax or other things that you may face as you try to pay out for services. Because a lot of these services are organized by foreign companies. Um, so, you know, your, your, your payment for those services will be subject to certain taxes on the Taiwan side. Uh, but, you know, if it, if it does make sense and you're getting something that you wouldn't have been able to get in Taiwan, you have a guy in Estonia or someone anywhere in the planet doing this, it's great because, uh, you know, if it's something you need. And maybe you don't need him that much. Maybe that's the reason you hire him. You need, you know, you need 10 hours of his time and that's it. You don't want to have to take him on as a forever employee and, or, or terminate him. You just say, you know, you just, you know, this is your, um, I need, I need 10 to 20 hours of your time. Yeah. I'm just wondering if this is something that you've ever, you know, leading on from what you were just talking about, are people feeling more open to talk about certain things that they may not have been before? There's, there's two interesting sides to that coin. One is that like greater openness is good uh, when it actually leads to something where, you know, you can go and express something that you wouldn't have said otherwise. You feel the confidence to be able to say, to speak up about something that you know was wrong. And you always hope that it's not going to be like, you know, like mainland China with the 100 flowers campaign where you have, uh, you know, you encourage people to speak up. And then when they speak up, you, you're like, holy cow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wreck you for that. Um, on the flip side of it, uh, though, you don't want people to be cruel to each other. And I think that's maybe where work from home fails a bit. And I've seen this in large organizations um, spread out over, you know, around the world. And so there was a tendency I, I observed where people who hadn't met each other in person could online at least behave horribly towards each other. And, and you see this with those arguments people have on Facebook or other things. It's like someone that they've never met or someone that they haven't simply haven't seen in a long time. And they'll get on and, you know, next thing you know, they're like, um, you know, they're, they're uh, immediately uh, going down the path of saying, um, you know, you must, you know, well, I didn't know you were a pedophile, you know. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's it's just kind of like, you know, you, the people feel sometimes because they're not in front of that person, they can say the most horrible things. Now, in a workplace, that's inhibited somewhat. But uh, I have definitely seen that um, text messages, um, you know, uh, line messages, uh, WhatsApp, and so on, uh, those things show up at trial. And there are very organized employees who have binders filled with the messages that were sent to them by management or by coworkers um, that are this, their collected evidence of, of mistreatment. And managers who think that, you know, that this is private are sorely mistaken. And managers who think that you know, I guess maybe sometimes they forget that you send an email, there's more than one copy of it. Uh, you send a message, a line message. Now the other guy has, you know, has a screenshot that he's going to be putting into that big binder of his about horrible things you've said and done. I just, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, I, I was laughing a little bit because of it's, it's a, 
it's almost like the stupidity of it in a way. It's like, uh, you know, it goes through so many different servers and you think people think, well, I deleted it or I've, I've had people like recall emails. You know, you get the message saying uh, so-and-so would like to recall this email. I've already got the email. But the other thing about when we talk about line and stuff like this, this is a very interesting thing. And this, again, this comes back to kind of, we were talking a little bit about um, employment and, you know, this question of sending a line message after hours or a text message or, a, or a, you know, I, I have to be very careful and make it very clear that even though I may be sending a message at a particular time, I am not expecting you to answer or do anything until the appropriate working hour. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I pretty much take the attitude, you know, in accepting some very strange emergency situations, um, and, you know, keeping in mind that a law firm will sometimes have to put out fires, you know, the sense of uh, there's, there's something desperate or something very important. You have to reach someone out of hours to, you know, because there's an emergency or can you catch this? Can you stop this before it goes to the wrong, you know, this behavior? Uh, we've seen some really ab abysmal behavior, uh, even within our own industry. To give an example, um, many years ago, an employee, uh, you know, was talking to me about their previous law firm where... Um, they had a rule that you'd be fined 500 NT if you didn't answer the phone. And uh, in her case, on her first night of working at that firm, she was kept until like 1.30 a.m., you know, which, which first off is a terrible way to treat someone on their first day. I mean, generally on the first day in our firm, we've got them just learning our software and systems and time entry, and, and we try to get them out early, you know, or a decent hour. Um, and... In this case, at 1.30 in the morning, the person had got home, got to their apartment, uh, was taking a shower, and the phone rang. And, of course, couldn't get to the phone and got penalized 500 NT for not answering the phone while they were in the shower at, you know, after 1.30 in the morning. And that's, that's, you know, that's dodgy. That's really bad. That's, that's a crappy employer right there. You can't just do that to human beings. Um, I also am not a shouter. Um, I think it's it's ridiculous when I hear about um, people yelling at their employees, and there's definitely law firms where that's that's the norm. But I've never understood people who like suddenly burst into kind of you know, yelling at people and screaming across a room about things. I'm like, well, it kind of it happened. Whatever it was, <laughs> you know, it happened. And you yelling at people is not a solution to the problem. I allow myself to get angry maybe once every three years, and that's only for safety reasons, usually involving my children. So well, I think also it helps that usually when I get mad, I get a bit colder. So it's a little more, and I, I'm not actually, as far as I can tell, related to Clint Eastwood, despite my name, but uh, there is a little bit more of a, you know, you kind of go into dirty hairy mode. Um, and uh, I found that, that, like, I, most of the time, if I get angry, it's just because I'm being paid to do that for a client. It, you know, they say that lawyers are frustrated actors. And so sometimes, you know, we have to be able to express outrage um, and not in a... It's active, positive outrage. It's, it's using it as a tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, seriously, what are you doing? What, wh why is your client doing this? You know, you, you have to be able to stick up for them. You have to be able to, like, push back against absolute nonsense. You have to be able to show... Um, you know, when you're in a meeting with counterparty counsel who's just, you know, who, who they and, uh, and their client are acting like uh, destructive nincompoops 
for lack of a better word, they're just, you know, they're doing something that's incredibly stupid and destructive. And perhaps because they didn't have the, the diligence to know what their client has done, uh, to be able to express outrage at them for the piss poor job that they're doing in representing their client. And, you know, to, to be able to like hit them over the head with it. And, but usually I do that in a, I usually do that in a, in a calmer way. I do that without shouting, for example. But, you know, the ability to, without shouting, to tear them apart where it, they can see it. And I've seen people, and I've seen people unsuccessfully try to get me mad. And it's very hilarious. Usually, uh, it'll be in the midst of a, a meeting at a local law firm, um, one that doesn't have any foreigners working for them. And they'll try to play the, this has come up a couple of times, they'll try to play the race card on me, or they'll try to play some sort of ethnicity card against me, uh, well, where you probably don't understand how we do things here. Yeah, or something like that, right? You're not Taiwanese, you're not whatever. And, and you know, I don't let it hurt me because what I do is because I'm not there for me. I'm there for my client. And I say, you know, I'll call it for what it is. I think it's actually a, I think if you ever read Getting to Yes, which is still a brilliant book, I do like, um, you know, calling out things when I see them. I see a stupid tactic being pulled and to say, yes, I see that you're trying to make me angry, but we're here about this case. And that's why we're here for this negotiation. Um, you know, I'm not here for us to have an interpersonal discussion. And my race and ethnicity has nothing to do with what we're here today to talk about. And then I guess just this one, um, I routinely try to demonstrate to my employees that there's nothing I'm not willing to do. So if it's a matter of making copies or making coffee, um, if I go into a meeting, I do often don't try to play the managing partner card um, in the discussion. I, I try to speak of them as as colleagues and as equals and as people whom I have the highest regard for. Um, I try to demonstrate my respect for them, but I also try to demonstrate that there's, um, that there's nothing wrong in doing the most menial tasks if those are the things that need to be done for client success. So if they need me to show up into a meeting to be the you know, to help them look as good as they possibly can. If they need me to review their PowerPoint slides, I will, I will fulfill any role I can to help my colleagues and do what they need to do and to make them look as good as possible when they do it. I think that's a super excellent point to finish on, John. I like this idea of, you know, be prepared to, you know, roll your sleeves up really and get in there and do whatever is required to help and support your team. And I think that's a wonderful attitude it's important i think it is john i we, we've again we, we've talked a lot, of, a lot of stuff over the over the range of this podcast we've talked about managers needing to be open to new ideas um we've talked about things like the understanding the trends and how you as a, as a law firm actually get to see a lot of these trends ahead of time um, but how we as companies respond to those trends We've talked about contracts and laws, uh, how these things are very important and how they need to be applied, but also how actually the preferred solution often is to negotiate and work together for a bespoke solution. Um, 
we've talked about how you, you need to be kind and you need to trust your employees and hopefully that builds trust from the employees to the employer as well. Um, you've brought up often, I think, throughout your uh, dialogue today, you've talked about, you know, asking questions, clarifying stuff. And I think probably your training as a lawyer helps you to kind of, you know, head down that path. Being very clear on what your needs are in a situation, but also setting up boundaries. We talked about messaging and kind of time and, uh, you know, the, the expectations on an employee and the amount of time that they need to give to a job. Understanding your emotions. We were just talking about that a little bit towards the end there but also this ability to be able to use your emotions in a particular situation. Don't let them control you, but rather use the emotion to control the situation. Make it a tool. And this question at the end, which I think was really, really right, you brought up, the, uh, you brought up this, uh, that very famous book, which is called... Getting to Yes. Getting to Yes. You brought up that very famous book called Getting to Yes. And I think that's something that's super important for anybody out there who's, who's leading teams or, or doing anything to involve with negotiation is just understanding why you're doing something and using that process in order to get to the yes that you need. John Eastwood, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You can listen to this podcast live on the fourth Monday of every month on ICRT and after that on the ICRT website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Leadership Matters by Steve Parker. You can also check out my social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. We'll see you next time.